We need a big arsenal of Bible verses that we can go to when we're weak or struggling. And if that's you, this chapter, this psalm is a big gun, right? This is a big weapon against discouragement, against insecurity. And it's a great text that reminds us of who God is. So this is a, I mean, this is a big Psalm, Psalm 18. It's very long. It deserves days and days of meditation. So I hope that you won't just listen to this, but you'll take some of the insights that we have here and you'll take it and you'll spend time with this passage. I know for me, when I read, read this, I think about a lot of different so, uh, songs that I had in church as a kid. So maybe you were raised in a similar kind of church. And as I read a different phrase, you'll think of a song that you sang. Probably three or four songs come to mind. But this is a very powerful, very famous passage in scripture. Now, this is a royal song. So it's clearly focused on the reign of David and the victory that God's giving to him. And so it reminds us in a lot of ways of Psalm 2, which was this messianic royal psalm that was focused on God appointing his king, his son, who was going to have victory over the nations and bring them into submission and worship of God. And so it, it seems like a lot of similar themes here. People are opposed to David. They're trying to harm him, but God is strengthening and giving victory to his king. And there's even a picture at the end of the psalm of his dominion over all the nations and of God's forever reign through his offspring. So it's, it's a very interesting passage. There's a lot to see here. We won't be able to go through every verse because there's 50 verses, um, but... We'll, we'll go through it the best we can. Now, this entire psalm is repeated almost verbatim in 2 Samuel chapter 22. So whenever you see something repeated in the Bible, know that it's important. There's a reason why God repeats things, just like if you're a teacher or a parent and you repeat something to someone, right? It's because you really want to hammer it home. It's very important. And so the repetition of this shows us that this matters a lot for us. It's a very important psalm. And it's in 2 Samuel. It's at the very end of the book, right before the last words of David in 2 Samuel. So it has this place of prominence and kind of summing up a lot about his life. Now, you let's let's just kind of dig into this. We'll, we'll um, start with the heading, the title there in verse, well, it's verse zero, but uh, it's not listed that way in your in your Bibles but it is part of the original text. And this is what it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of the song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, so that's that's the, the title there. So this is basically a quote from 2 Samuel 22, verse one. And it's hard to be sure what time in David's reign this refers to. Um, because again, it was placed at the end of the book of 2 Samuel, but the indication seems to be that what was just in light was this conflict with Saul and that he's now risen to power. He's gained victory over his enemies. It's kind of the ascent of David is what it sounds like. Maybe before his sin with Bathsheba, when he's still being faithful to God and winning all these victories and seeing kind of the golden age of his reign. Now, one interesting thing here is that David is called the servant of the Lord. That is very interesting. It's only used a couple of places in Scripture, like when Moses is referred to as the servant of the Lord. So that really stands out as a you know pretty unique phrase. A lot of people refer to God as their Lord or God at first and the servant, but this exact title, servant of the Lord, 
is a very important one in scripture. And so David takes that on himself. And we're going to see him also compare himself to Moses and reflect language of the Exodus as he, he talks about how he views himself and how God loves him and cares for him. So there's clearly a connection there as well. Now, I've based my outline for this chapter kind of loosely off of Derek Kidner's outline and his commentary. So we'll, we'll go through this. And like I said, we won't touch on every single section. But make sure if you have questions on this psalm, always leave a comment. Um, I'd love to answer that. Or if you have a thought, something that stands out of a great verse that you love, share that down below as well. So the first section is verses 1 to 3, which is the rock. The rock. Look at this, starting in verse 1. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. It's an incredibly personal opening line. It really stands out to me. I don't know if it did to you, but I love you, O Lord. That is, that's powerful. David has a personal relationship with God, and he has a deep love for God. He knows that God loves him like a father, and he loves God like a son. And, and God has been with him and shown his love to David. That's why he's developed this intimate relationship is because he's seen God work in his circumstances and show his love and his care for David, even in the toughest of circumstances. Now, David uses a, a number of different words to refer to God. It's sort of like this, this avalanche of different words that are speaking about who God is. The common themes in all of this is that it, it seems to evoke David's circumstances when he was running from Saul. So all the words here to describe God are military terms or they're sort of wilderness, cliff, rock kind of terms. And, and if you, you know First Samuel, you know that David was constantly running from, from Saul in the wilderness, and he was having to take refuge in different places. And so what I think this shows us is that David has learned to see God through the circumstances that he's been in. When he was hiding from, from Saul, he hid in the rock, and that reminded him of the protection that was really not from the rock, but from God, who's the real rock. And, and so that picture of God being a rock is going to be used throughout this passage. When he hid in the stronghold, that's mentioned a few times in 1 Samuel, that stronghold points to the reality that God is his stronghold, that he's the one that he takes refuge in, that God is his defender, his shield. And so, God, so David calls upon him again, and he again finds salvation from God. He knows who God is. He knows that he's worthy of praise. He knows that he'll respond to the prayers of his servant. So we see the rock, and then verses 4 to 19, we see the rescue, the rescue. David is in danger. He, he understands that there's this danger coming. He feels overwhelmed, and he speaks of this in terms of, of death. Verse, verses 4 and 5, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. So he's speaking of death and destruction and Sheol, which is the grave again and again. It's almost as if death is personified, pulling him down, um, destroying him and ensnaring him. And he's pointing to the, the hope that he has even against death. He needs to be rescued, right? So he, in verse 6, calls upon God who answers him from his heavenly temple. 
I think that reference of the temple here is the heavenly temple, not the earthly temple. But God, because he loves David and he has power, he responds to rescue David from his trouble. And the, the language here is so powerful. The language in, in Psalm 18 is amazing. Verse, look at verses 7 and 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. Man, this is terrifying language when you think about it. What it's depicting about God. The language in this section is reminiscent of when God appeared on Mount Sinai to give the law to Israel. There was the earthquakes, the earth was shaking, there was fire and smoke and all of these terrifying things. But here this language is speaking of how God intervenes to rescue David. God, God is getting angry on David's behalf because others are hurting him when he doesn't deserve it. And I love this because it's a good reminder that We've talked about this before on this channel, of course, but God's wrath or his anger is not a bad thing. It's not a dark side of God that we have to hide or avoid. God's wrath is something that we, we know is good because God's wrath is the way that he defends his purity, defends his glory. It's the way he executes justice, and it's the way he defends his people. If you're a child of God, then the wrath of God is on your behalf. It's, it's going to one day conquer the enemies of God's people. It's going to vindicate us. And so here, God is angry, which shows that he's not, he's not uncaring about the wrongs that we face. And when it comes to David, he's going to get angry so he can respond in justice and in judgment. So look, let's go on a little bit here. Verses 9 and 10, it says, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. I think the language here is speaking of God coming on his heavenly chariot. That's sort of the idea here. I mean, that's kind of weird for us to think of, but that was the metaphor for them. We see a picture of that chariot in Ezekiel chapter 1. If you want to get a great picture of what this chariot is, read Ezekiel chapter 1. Um, it's an amazing passage. Now, God isn't pulled by animals. He's not carried by animals or by a machine. He's carried by the most powerful beings there are, the cherubim. These, these are who pull or, or drive his chariot, the cherubim. Now, the, that word cherub is the singular, singular of the word. Cherubim is the plural. When you hear cherub, do not think of the Renaissance paintings with the fat babies. Okay, that's that is so not what the Bible describes as what these angelic beings are. The, cherub, the cherubim are these incredible beings of God that are associated with his holiness and with guarding his holiness. So the first place we ever see them in the scripture is in Genesis chapter 3, as the, the cherub is holding this sword, this fire flaming sword that guards the way to the tree of life. And so God appoints these guardians to keep us from coming back into the garden, guarding his holiness. It was an image of the cherubim that blocked the way to the Holy of Holies, that curtain that was set up that Jesus and his death would tear in two. That was cherubim that were guarding the way for us to go into the presence of God. It was two cherubim that were on the Ark of the Covenant over the mercy seat of God. 
And so these creatures are powerful guardians. And here, they're, they're being used by God for him to move into action. He's moving with power, with ferocity to help David. Skip down to verse 13. We'll see more of this. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. So God is fighting the battle. He's shooting arrows. He's destroying the enemies of David. Now, some commentators here point out that it sounds like some of the language you would have heard in that day when it came to the the god Baal, who was the the god of the storm in in the, the surrounding uh, you know neighbors of Israel, and here it shows us that this is not some pagan god who's in control of the skies and of the storms. It's the Lord Himself. All of that He is the He's the Lord over everything in creation, and so here He's acting through the storm to come and to rescue His people. And then he begins to use language that's associated with the Exodus. Look at verse 15. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. So the the sea is driven back, and you see the foundations of the earth. Um, You see him being drawn out of many waters. All this language is really clearly an indication of the Exodus story. My first read through, I'm like, oh, that's Exodus language. And it was confirmed by commentators, right? So even of him being drawn out, that word for drew out is just the name of Moses. Like that's the exact exact same word, just in a different, you know, form. But He's essentially saying, just as Moses was drawn out of the waters of judgment as a baby, just as God's people were were brought through the waters of judgment in the crossing of the Red Sea, in the same way, God's going to act on my behalf now to save me. Just as God has saved in the past, he's going to save now in the present because he loves David just like he loves Moses. His love for, for Moses wasn't greater than his love for David. And we can know for us that because of what Jesus has done, because he's washed us and brought us into the family of God as, as adopted children, that God doesn't love you less than he loves David or Moses. That God has the same kind of love, that familial love for us. And so we can have confidence that what God's done in the past, he's going to do in our future as well. And verses 17 to 18 talks about how he had enemies that were too strong for him, just like Israel did when Pharaoh was coming to recapture them as slaves. And yet God wins the victory. God is on their side, and so God delivers. And eventually, he brought Israel to the promised land. Verse 19 says, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That phrase, broad place, is the same language that's used of the promised land. So God's people are brought through the desert. They're brought to the promised land of Canaan, and God gives this to them as a gift. And so here, God has rescued David and brought him all the way home, just like he did for Israel. And again, we can have confidence that he will do that for us because we are his people. So that's the, se- the second ma- major section. And then we see the third section, verses 20 to 30, which is the righteous, the righteous. So now David begins to focus on his own righteousness. It's an interesting development in, the, in this psalm because I wouldn't have expected this. 
He's focusing on God and God's rescue of him, that he's weak. And then he begins to talk about how good he is, is what it sounds like. Right? It almost sounds self-righteous, but, but David's not being self-righteous here. So don't mistake that. He's not saying that he's without sin at all. He's not saying that just because he uses the word blameless, he's not saying that he's a sinless human. He, uh, God uses the same language of Job in Job 1.8 or of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. So God uses this kind of language to refer to sinful, flawed people, but what he's talking about is sort of the, the general pattern of their life, that there's, the people around them don't have anything to condemn them for. That there's no sort of outward big sin that would, people could point to and say that they're guilty of something. And so again, this is a relative kind of righteousness, but look at, look at verse 20 and see this language here. It says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. So David's emphasizing here that this attack by his enemies is it's unjust, it's unfounded. And so he appeals to God to look at what he's done and to deliver him because of this. And it's because of God's law that David can follow him in this way. At the center of the section is verse 22, which speaks of the rules and the statutes of God. It's because of God's law and how God has instructed David that he's able to follow after him. It's because also we, we know and in greater context, it's because God has redeemed David that he's able to now live according to God's law. So David has kept these rules and these statutes, which are a way of summing up the entirety of God's law. He's lived blamelessly. So he asked God to act on his behalf. Verse 25 and 26 says, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. This is this that last phrase is so interesting. The word tortuous could be translated as deceptive. So you make yourself deceptive to those who are crooked, those who are perverse is the idea. In in what sense is God deceptive? It seems very strange to say of God. Now there are a few times in scripture where God actually tells somebody to say something that's not true, to withhold the truth from someone. And essentially to deceive. So we have some examples of that. I think the big idea here, to put it simply, is that when you make yourself an enemy of God, you forfeit any right to the truth. That when God gives to you the truth over and over and you reject it and you turn from him, you become an enemy of God. And he, he enters into all-out warfare with you. So it's a, it's a scary thing. And so we should be careful to obey God and to follow his law. Verse 28 and 29, he begins to use... Some, some bigger language about how God has strengthened him. He says, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. So he's saying God empowers him to do these impossible feats. God gives him strength so he can go against a whole troop of soldiers, which would be a much bigger group of soldiers, right? So he's saying, I can fight against a whole force of soldiers, a whole troop. I can jump over a wall. I can do these things that would be impossible, but because God is strengthening me, I have this power. 
Now, this all this sounds like the feats of David's mighty men in 2 Samuel 23, right? God gave them strength to do these impossible things because of David's obedience, because God, God, David was honoring God and following after him. Verse 30 says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Even though David has suffered a lot, even though David's been, been through a lot, uh, all these attacks, David can say with confidence that God's way is perfect, that his word is true, that God has always done things exactly how they should be done. And so he's in, he's in awe of who God is. Verses 31 to 45 is the next big section, and this is the rout. The rout. What I mean by rout is a complete defeat of an army, right? That's, that's the idea here. He said, he's showing God's victory in his life. Verse 31, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? So again, David calls God a rock, a rock. This is the same language used of God in Deuteronomy 32, where, where Moses says, the, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. God is the rock for David, and he keeps going back to this metaphor because of how accurately he describes God as an unmovable, powerful, strong uh, presence in his life. And God, David goes into more detail about how God gives him victory over his enemies here. Verse 32 and 34, he says, The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my, my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. So he's talking about how God strengthens him. He mentions his feet that are secure and his hands that are strong. He's talking about bending a bow of bronze, which is really strange because no one would make a bow out of just bronze because there's no spring to it, right? So the whole point of a bow is that you pull it and then it springs back into shape and shoots the arrow. So bronze is a metal and it's kind of a soft metal, softer metal. And so I, what could be happening here is he's just speaking of it poetically. He's saying, I'm that strong that I could bend bronze. Or maybe some have said that there, there was possibly wood bows that were um, strengthened by bronze, kind of reinforced by bronze. But the picture is clear. God gives David strength to have victory over his enemies. That's, that's the obvious picture. Verse 35, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. Now, this also is one of those phrases that is really interesting to me. Your gentleness made me great. That word gentleness is literally the word humility. So God's humility made David great. What does that that mean? Well, I think he could be saying that God has shared his glory in some sense with David. He's been so gracious and so even, you could say, humble that he's given to David glory that belonged ultimately to God. But I also think David might be speaking better than he knows. Right? Because for us as Christians, we know it's the humility of God that makes us great. It's that, that the Son of God lowered himself and made himself humble, entered into our estate and saved us by a humiliating death on the cross. That's what makes us great in any sense of the word. That's how we have hope. So he goes on talking more detail about his victory over his enemies in verses 36 to 42. And he's probably talking about future victories that God's going to help him win. That seems to be the idea. But skip down to verse 43 and notice this language. He says, you've delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. 
foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. So here he's speaking about complete victory and, and really global dominion, that he's, he's over all of the nations. Now, this never happened in the life of David, not in any comprehensive sense. Um, I think what he's speaking to here is a future victory. Just as Psalm 2 spoke of how the Messiah is going to crush the nations and rule over them, here I think he's speaking of the same thing, the Messiah's future victory, his descendants' victory over those who would oppose God. And this victory will one day come through Jesus Christ. Now look at the final section here, verses 46 to 50, which I'm calling the recognition. The recognition, which is that God, David ends with his final recognition that Yahweh was the one who gave victory to him in his life. Verse 46, the Lord lives and blessed be the rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. David's spoken of his kingship, but now he, he's looking and seeing that God reigns, that God is powerful. And David recognizes that God is salvation. He's the one who rescues him and establishes him as king. And then he ends with these words. He says in verse 49, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So we see clearly at the end here how this passage is influenced by previous scripture. If you've listened to our previous videos, you've walked through the Bible with us, then this language should be very familiar for you. Um, we should read everything David writes in light of one of those key texts of Scripture, which is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where God makes this covenant with David and he promises to establish David's throne forever. He combines the throne of God and the throne of man in this covenant, essentially, and says he's going to put someone to reign on David's throne forever, a descendant of David's. And it's going to be one of David's offspring. That's the word that he uses, the same word that's being used here. So whenever you see that word in Scripture, if you have the, the ESV like I do, the English Standard Version, it uses that word very often. Underline that, circle that. It's a key word. So the offspring of David will rescue and establish God's reign on earth forever, is what he's saying. And of course, that word offspring goes back even further in the story of Scripture. It goes back to the patriarchs, and it goes back all the way to Adam and Eve, to Genesis 3.15, where God promises right after the fall that an offspring is going to come from the woman who will crush the serpent forever. And so all of this reminds us that there's a, a an offspring coming, there's a descendant of David, a second Adam, a true king that's going to come and is going to rescue us and redeem us and reign forever. And that word anointed at the end there as well is the word Messiah. It's the word Messiah. And it's this, again, is the same idea as offspring. These two are the same person. Um, David was the anointed of God. He was chosen by God for this role, but he was awaiting a future Messiah, a true king who would fulfill all the things that he failed to fulfill. One that, the one that is coming that is truly righteous, not just in the limited sense like David is, but in an ultimate sense. He's perfectly, truly righteous, and he's going to win the final victory. So this passage points us, again, to Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, the Messiah, the awaited offspring, the rock of salvation, who finally and fully rescues God's people.